Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 305. Today is Sunday, the 2nd of September 2018. And just before introducing my guest for this week, I wanted to do a shout out to Jonathan Barshop for your wonderful recent review on iTunes. Thanks for that. This week, I have Roman Krasnark, who's a social philosopher and best selling author of multiple books, including Empathy, How Should We Live, Carpe Diem, and How to Find Fulfilling Work books that have been published in more than 20 languages. He's also the founder of the world's first empathy museum and of the Digital Empathy Library. In this conversation with Roman, we discuss the intersection of the art of living and social change, the importance of empathy in our lives and in an enterprise, as well as the role of and interest in the esoteric game of real tennis. A great conversation. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue podcast, where we discuss branding and all things digital. I am Minter Dial, your host, and you'll find the show notes on my eponymous site, MinterDial.com. Enjoy the show. Roman Krasnarek, uh, I hope that's the best pronunciation uh, or the po- right pronunciation for you. Great to have you on the show. I'm a, a big fan of what you've written, and uh, so you are a, um, a master of the uh, authorial universe. You've written a number of books, uh, one of which really caught my attention, which is Empathy, Why It Matters and How it Got, how, how to Get It. You also just wrote uh, a year ago, Carpe Diem Regained, Seizing the Day in a Distracted World. So you really are picking fantastic topics. Roman, in your own words, how would you introduce yourself? I find that an incredibly difficult question, partly because I've had lots of different careers. I've been an academic, a political scientist, a professional gardener. Um, I've been a community worker and worked in human rights. Um, I now tend to get labeled as a philosopher. Um, I don't really like that title. It seems a little bit too inward looking. So I tend to call myself a social philosopher because if you look on my wall of my study where I normally work, I have two circles that are drawn, which are overlapping. And one circle says the art of living, and the other one says social change. And the point at which those two circles meet is where I try to do my work. So topics I write about, like empathy or carpe diem season the day, are topics which I think are, I hope are useful for people in everyday life. That's the art of living bit. But I also hope that they speak to social and political transformation. Um, so it's a bit hard to sum that all up in a job title. Social philosopher is the best I've come up with so far. And you're also a handy real tennis player. Well, I think we all need to find ways to express creativity and spontaneity. I can't do it by painting or playing music, but I can kind of do it by playing the sport that we both share and love. Well, it is a sport that invites uh, spontaneity, if not awkward uh, bounces and and, uh, makes you come down to earth very quickly. Yeah, it does. But it also, I think, raises a lot of the big challenges of of how to live, you know, how to think about ambition, how to think about what I'm facing now. I'm 47 years old. I'm getting worse on the real tennis court. I used to be quite good at this game. And there's a question of, well, how do you think about what you're aiming to do? How do you, are you trying to maintain an old level? Are you, are you willing to give that up for some kind of mythological idea of pure enjoyment? 
Um, am I just going to go on court and try and get into a Zen state? In fact, a lot of those questions about goals, ambitions, meaning, I think are tied up in a game like Real Tennis, which is in fact, in a way, for me, is speaking to my mortality, sure. which is partly what the idea of seizing the day is all about. The clock is ticking. How are you going to live? Mm. Beautiful. Well, so um, the, the topic that I really wanted to share with you, because, you know, I've got my new book coming out on empathy and I've got you cited up and down in the book uh, with all the things you've done w- w- with regard to the museum and, and your uh, work at the the, the, um, the College of Life or whatever, I can't remember what it's called. As well School as, of Life. School of Life, there you go. <laughs> as well as your, your books. So um, give us a, how you describe empathy. Yeah, the way I think about it, is I think about opening a psychology textbook and seeing two different definitions of empathy. The first one is what tends to be called affective empathy. Something's called emotional empathy. It's about when you share or mirror someone's emotions, you see you know, anguish on a child's face, and if you too feel anguish, that's affective empathy. You're sharing their emotions. And the other kind of empathy, when you flip the page of the psychology textbook, is what's called cognitive empathy or perspective-taking empathy. That's where you really try and imagine what is it like to be another person with their view of the world, with their experiences. And so one of the ways I think about it is if you're walking past a homeless guy, um, if you really try and think to yourself, well, what is it like to be him um, sleeping out rough on a cold winter's night? What's it like to be walked past without someone looking you in the eye? That's all about that cognitive empathy or perspective-taking empathy. If, on the other hand, you just walk past them and you, you just flick a coin and feel sorry for them, that's what psychologists tend to call sympathy. Um, so, you know, there's a whole load of different definitions there. But for me, it's that cognitive ability to really step into the shoes of someone else, to get inside their skin. That's what it's all about to me. That's what I think has the power for social uh, and, and political and other forms of transformation. So that's the one we can learn as a skill. Uh, yeah, right. As opposed to effective, which is a little bit more instinctive at some level. Yeah, and, and that you really develop that very early in childhood. You know, by the age of two or three, you're 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 not completely wired in terms of effective empathy, but it's pretty much um, sort of in you. Um, you know, what your early childhood relationships are like, and that's what attachment theory is all about. It's about what's happening in those those moments. But that skill of learning to see someone else's point of view, in a way, is something you can do every day by just practicing curiosity about strangers you know talk to someone you don't normally talk to uh, every day the guy who sells you a newspaper each week or the uh, person who's cleaning the floor at the office and when you try and understand their life you're getting outside yourself that's that imaginative leap of empathy in your experience then roman um can everyone be empathic is it something that there are people have higher endowments or and there's some people that are just completely empty of it or and can everybody become more empathic? I think pretty much everybody can become more empathic. There's a tiny slither of society, people who've been, you know, so damaged for whatever reason that they're, you know, these are people who one might call sociopaths and things like that. It's very rare for them to fundamentally change and learn or develop those empathic skills. Um, and of course, as you get older, it becomes more difficult. And that's why the best empathy teaching programs in the world are ones that work with kids um, when they're a bit more malleable. Um, So, for example, the program called Roots of Empathy, which I've written about, where a baby is invited into the classroom 
The kids adopt a baby for a year. They sit around the baby. They start talking about the baby. Why is she crying or laughing? Why is she suddenly looking at the mother or father? It's all about trying to step into the baby's shoes. They use that as a jumping off point for talking about what's it like to be bullied in the playground or to be sleeping in the streets of Calcutta. Now, that's a way that we can all learn empathy skills. And most kids respond very strongly to that. Of course, there are differences um, depending on background and all sorts of things like that. And people are a little bit different. To me, the question is, not as some people more empathic than others. The question is, what are you going to do with what you've got? You know, so the action um, that follows. Yeah, and, and wherever you are in your life, you know, how are you going to try and extend your empathic imagination? How are you going to try and cross boundaries and try and understand lives that you may think that you understand but you really don't or the lives of people you may ignore? I've just been in Brazil for the last couple of weeks. And of course, it's an astonishing country, partly in the cities, because you've got huge luxury apartment complexes right next to the favelas, the shanty towns. And it's amazing the number of sort of middle upper middle class Brazilians who don't know anybody who's poor except they're cleaner, right? And they might live next door to a whole community. Um, and they might, they might play the trumpet, and so might be the guy who lives just across the wall in the favela, but they've never met. It's mm. madness, mm. you know, what kind of society is that? This is one where there's severe empathy deficits. How did you get on the journey of empathy? Where, was there like a moment, of, like a spark that got you into it as you're going along your journey or you always considered it a topic? I think, I think if I look back at my life and I try and think of, you know, how did this all begin? There's a kind of a superficial answer. The superficial answer is that in the late 1990s, I was a political scientist, and I used to think you changed the world by changing laws and public policy and institutions. And suddenly I had kind of this kind of realization that that was missing something, which is the way that we change the world through empathy, by particularly through conversations between individuals. That if you and I start to see the world from each other's point of view, you create a little moment of mutual understanding, a little tiny bit of equality. And then the question is, how do we scale this up? create a microcosmic form of social change. So I started getting very interested in how empathy can be a tool for overcoming social divides between rich and poor or Jews and Muslims, whoever. So that's a sort of superficial level. It was a kind of an intellectual recognition um, that change also happens through relationships. And that's why I think of there being a, the need for a revolution of human relationships. But then on a deeper level, I remember I once had this moment of revelation when I was, in fact, it was very weird. I was reading a biography of Hitler's architect, Albert Speer, uh, a biography by Gita Sereni, a very fine and long book. And at the very end, there's a couple of lines where she says, well, there's this puzzle about Speer. Why was this guy who seemed like a nice guy when she interviewed him after he came out of Spandau prison and stuff, why did this seemingly nice guy, was he, why was he also able to preside over the Holocaust? How is that possible? And her conclusion was something along the lines of, well, he didn't know how to love. So something with his childhood could somehow distance himself from people. And that's when I had a moment of revelation where I thought, ah, my mum died when I was 10. And actually, that was the moment where I kind of lost my empathy. I became much more distanced from people. Um, I had a kind of view from nowhere. And what I recognized was that 
since then I've been on a kind of journey or my interest in empathy has been a journey to recover that empathic self I'd lost as a child. Mm. So that's the sort of more on the psychoanalyst couch answer. Right. But beautiful because at the end of the day, uh, there's, I avoid, I do believe the, the, of the spark and it can be a small thing, one conversation that does a lot of change and, and it led you on that path, that event, of course, which was yeah, and in fact, there's some, and there was actual conversations too. There was another moment where I walked down the street where where around the corner where I live in Oxford in the UK, and there was this homeless guy I'd walked past for years and years and years, a mad guy. So he's seen door shoes in the snow. One day I started talking to him, and it turned out that we had a lot in common. He studied philosophy, politics, and economics just like me at Oxford University. And we developed a friendship based on our mutual interest in Aristotle and pepperoni pizza. Right? And that was a, an empathic re- revelation for me because it's all about challenging stereotypes and prejudices. I think a lot of the great empathy moments in individual lives are when you realize you're completely wrong about somebody. Mm-hmm. You totally misjudge them. You think you understand them and you're wrong. And I love those moments. <laughs> um, the ability to say sorry. Um, when we look at these divides that you're uh, looking, I mean, let's say from the beginning, crossing the divides, at some level, I was thinking that there's always, well, I want to bring to them through this tool, empathy, I want to understand them, but bring to them my side of the picture is in terms of an action. Like, well, you know, you on the other side, you're an extremist, let's say in certain countries now that extremism is, is at the head of many countries. And with more liberal view, you say, well, I, I want to bring them liberality. And if I understand where they're coming from, I'm going to be able to persuade them to change, to come be a little bit more human. So to what extent is is your journey one of a position where you want to encourage them to come to your side as opposed to necessarily wanting to go to their side? You know what I mean, the difference? Yeah, that's a really fascinating question. I think on some level, the way I think about it is that the... What I'm trying to get across to somebody is built into the empathic process itself. So if I talk to somebody and I try and understand them and I ask them about their life or their views about race or religion or politics or whatever, even if we completely disagree, what I'm trying to do there in a way is on one level, I'm trying to become a wiser person because I want to understand people who are different from me. And I think that is a useful and good thing to do as a human being. Um, and it challenges our own prejudices. The second thing I'm trying to do is to get that person to engage in dialogue and to understand that a mutual dialogue is something that the world is slightly better place than it was before the dialogue happened. Um, that they're willing to listen to me as I have listened to them, and we can make it a two-way process. Then I have got my message across, mm. you know, of course, you know, because the message I'm always trying to bring ultimately in these kinds of conversations is the importance of empathy itself. Now, mm. there are times where I'm trying to persuade somebody of something completely different, like to take climate change seriously, or I'm writing a new book about the art of long-term thinking. Okay, Now, there, that's something different is going on. Um, I think what can often happen in those situations is that it's hard to maintain empathic dialogue because you're uh, you're right. listening to the other person. You are trying you have these a powers of persuasion. Right. Um, but actually, to bring these two things together, 
let me just go back one step. One of the things I found with a lot of, for example, interfaith dialogues is the reason they fail is they try and get people of different religions to talk about the one thing they disagree on, which is religion. Right? If you bring them together, that is a terrible error. What you've got to do first is get them talking about the things that are more fundamental that they might share in life. Mm -hmm. Topics like ambition, love, death, children. Get them to recognize each other as human beings. Then after that, you can talk about religion. But first, you need to do the groundwork of humanizing the other. And I used to help run this organization called the Oxford Muse, spelled M-U-S-E, with a historian called Theodore Zeldin. And one of the things we did was run these conversation meals where we give people menus of conversation with questions about life on them, like what have you learned about the different varieties of love in your life or in what ways would you like to be more courageous? And you do the opposite of speed dating. You talk for an hour, not for a minute, about these sort of universal issues. And we tried to do them with groups who maybe hated each other. But first, we would get them finding out about what made them human. Um, it, it seems to me then, Roman, that at some level, what you are pushing is less empathy and more conversation. Empathy being the, the tool within conversation that allows for a constructive civil exchange. Um, I've, em I've certainly emphasized conversation in my work, but I don't think it's the only way to produce empathy. So, for example, the Empathy Museum I founded, its most well-known project, which has had over 100,000 people go to it. It's been a big international hit. It's called A Mile in My Shoe. It's a gigantic shoebox. And you can go inside the world's first empathy shoe shop and you um, are fitted with a pair of shoes your size. They might be the shoes of a guy who's been in prison for 14 years or a sex worker or a refugee. And you can literally walk a mile in their shoes while listening to an audio narrative of them talking about their life. In that case, it's a conversation. It's about listening. Sure. It's about a capacity to listen. Um, I've also started a web project called the Empathy Library, which is about films and books, all on the theme empathizing. Uh, again, that's not so much based on dialogue. Um, it's based more on a kind of cultural experience. But I do think that conversation is the most ready tool that we have to expand our empathic imagina imaginations. This is what human beings are really good at. Um, and I think this is relates, I think, to a, a topic uh, that I know you're interested in, you know, which is about digital culture and empathy. Um, you know, whether in an online world we can create empathic bonds and empathic relationships so tell me, what, um, um, what's your, your feeling these days of exactly this impact of digital on empathy? How do you read it? Because there are lots of things that are said about it. Yes, um, I have very mixed feelings about it. I'm a natural anti-technology person. So I spend a lot of time with people who work for Google and so on and trying to say to them, convince me that empathy um, can be a, a, or that the digital tools can be really good for creating more empathic world. I've tried to be as open as I can. Um, there are some good video games which promote empathy, um, some online projects which do it. But the long and the short of it for me is this. In fact, I'm going to steal a line that I saw recently from the great technology thinker Sherry Turkle. And she was talking about um, whether one should invent an empathy app of some kind. I'm, I'm, I'm Probably every week I'm approached by someone from California who wants to design an empathy app. 
And what Sherry Turkle said was this. She said, we don't need an empathy app. We are the empathy app. You know, human beings are designed for empathic interaction, particularly conversation. Um, so why not use that? <laughs> Do we really need to make it electronic? Um, and I think she's largely right. Of course, I think we're also just learning to walk when it comes to our electronic personalities and electronic conversations. I mean, where at the moment we scream at each other online and we're rude to each other because of anonymity. But I also know that there are amazing empathy building online projects. Like there's one, uh, which is a kind of indirect one I like, where there are these Brazilian teenagers who want to learn English from native English speakers, but they don't know any of them. And then these, on the other side, in fact, in North, then in Chicago, there are these elderly people in a care home who are really lonely. They happen to be native English speakers. So there's a project which has linked up these two groups with very simple kind of Skype-like video technology. So they teach English. Now, the word empathy isn't mentioned in that project, mm. except that it's exactly what it does. It builds empathy because it's getting people from different cultures and generations to make friends and they learn about each other. And I think it's brilliant. It does. I'll make sure to track down a, a link that I can put in the show notes. When you, when you look at the devices they're on the one hand, you know, making abstraction from apps per se, do you believe that this internet world and the devices has had a favorable impact? You know, we talked about nastiness uh, or has it had a negative impact? I mean, if I take one study that was published um, a couple of years ago that said that uh, for um, a, a large number, 30,000 students graduating from university in America, they self-declared themselves 40% less empathic than the same group 30 years ago. Yeah, and I absolutely think that um, digital cultures had a negative effect on uh, empathic understanding. Absolutely. I mean, you partly see it through the data on, you know, the more Facebook interactions you have, the more narcissistic you're likely to be. Um, other kinds of data seem to show it as well. So, and I don't think that's really that surprising, is it? Um, I guess the thing is, what are we going to do about it? Um, can we invent new social media platforms that connect us with people who are not like us rather than those who are just like us and share the same interest in music or sport or architecture or whatever it happens to be? Um, and I think we need a lot of inventive um, work in, in this area. Um, someone was telling me the other day about a study that Google has done of its own employees, and I can't remember the details of it, unfortunately, but it's something along the lines of the, the ones who are very sort of super high-tech, if, if they're compared to the ones who are not very high-tech and not as qualified and, and you know not super software engineers, it's the second group who have much better results on almost every level of job performance. And the reason is they're much better at making relationships. Mm -hmm. And they don't spend as much time on the screen. Well, not to mention the fact that the, let's say, the programmer mindset tends to be one that enjoys serial thinking, linear, uh, very constructed and logical thought which is not part, uh, not so, I, I say it's a bad or a poor bed partner for empathy. What, yeah, that's right. Yeah. What about um, empathy in artificial intelligence? Have you explored that? 
area? And do you think that empathy, therefore, could be can be coded into a machine? Yes, I I'm not a great expert on that, but I'm trying to learn about it. My intuitive thoughts. Well, I've sort of two kind of differing thoughts. You know, on the one hand, we know that if you're an elderly Japanese person in a care home looked after by a robot, you can fall in love with your robot. Okay, and that will have that happens, and that will happen more and more and more. People will have relationships with machines, just like in the great film. Is it called Her? Yes, I can't remember. Her. There are um, several. Her. Wonderful film. You fall in love with the operating system. Get very disappointed when you find out the operating system's having relationships with six thousand other people at the same time. Um, on the other I thought, hand, but I thought I, think, I was it, special. Yeah, I thought I was special. On the other hand, I think when it comes to let's take the film, the, the world of business and automation, um, I do think that in certain sectors, like in banking or whatever, the jobs are all going to go to machines eventually, or most of them. And what will human beings be left able to do? Make relationships, right? That's what we have a comparative advantage in. Maybe very good AI programming will develop to develop empathy in machines, but it's probably not going to be able to match humans. I've started having some conversations with people who work in this field, saying to them, look, really, the thing about the way empathy develops is that you don't just get it at one moment in time. It's something that develops through your life. It develops from early childhood experiences, from moments where you meet the homeless guy on the street who also went to the same university as you, um, through a death in the family, all the things I've been through. Now, can those things really be programmed into a machine? That timeline of experiences which make you who you are. Now, the programmers say, I don't know if this is your field, they say, yeah, we can do that. I just don't believe them, actually. I don't, I don't believe it. You have to be incredibly sophisticated to program in a lifetime of learning and mistakes. Yeah, sure. Um, I, I mean, I, I tend to sway that way. My, the bottom line of my book is that uh, there is no, uh, no path to general intelligence that scares me. Uh, and, and basically the idea is that I think that the, the complexity of emotions and the the unspeak unspoken and very implicit elements of everything we do in different contexts can be a different thing and so therefore it's just so it's infinitely complex and therefore it might tend towards a better solution might tend to include more empathy but it certainly won't be empathic like us human beings are. So I want to finish on one thing, which is um, about your carpe diem, because, um, you know, naturally it's a, it's a beautiful expression. A lot of people say, oh, life is short. Uh, but I would say that the majority of people do not do uh, and jump on the day. What are the tips and tricks and thoughts, if you, ha- if you will, with regard to your book, insofar as getting people to be more realistic about it. Do you need a near-death experience? Or what else can we do to be a little bit more uh, spontaneous on today's life? Well, the, the phrase carpe diem goes back to the Roman poet Horace, uh, who wrote a little poem in 23 BC. And the last two lines sum up what, what he was trying to say. He said, even as we speak, envious time flies past, seize the day and leave as little as possible for tomorrow. And he's really summing up the great question of the human existential journey, right? Which is, 
How should we live given the reality of our mortality? And therein lies the clue. If you're going to sort of sum it up, how can you get better at seizing the day? Recognize your mortality to think about death. Um, I advocate that people do a daily death pause to think about their own deaths for a few minutes each day. I don't mean like imagine yourself cold body in the coffin. I mean, be experimental with thinking about what it means to only have one life and to think about the choices you make. So, for example, um, develop this kind of thought experiment, which I partly borrowed from a, in a way, from a, a neuroscientist called David Eagleman. I call it the dinner party of the afterlife. It goes like this. So imagine you're dead, right? And you go up to the afterlife and there in, you're invited to dinner and there in the room are all the other yous who you could have been if you had made different choices. Mm. There's the you who almost died in a car accident and radically changed their life afterwards. There's the you who became an alcoholic. There's the you who didn't quite make the effort to make your marriage work and it fell apart. There's the you who actually tried really hard um, to follow your lifetime dream of opening an otter sanctuary in Dorset, whatever. And the question is, you look around at these alternative selves and you ask yourself, are there any of these alternative me's where I'd rather be or become? And that is an exercise in thinking about regret. You know, so we don't get to the end of our lives and look back and wish we'd done something else. We have many alternative selves who we could be. And so for me, Carpe Diem, Season of Day, is having a kind of hyper-awareness of these multiple possibilities, of different ways we can become the authors of our own lives. This is what Jean-Paul Sartre was talking about, of course, when he was talking about and writing about existentialism. It was about agency. It was about the kind of thrill of making choices, even if they're disastrous. Funnily enough, the word agency is something I use quite a lot in my book, my new one. Uh, and it is in coders on experience and also in some field of thought by giving agency to the other, you're demonstrating empathy or yes. And that's, a, yeah, that's a very beautiful connection between the two. I think that's right. By giving agency to the other, you're, you're demonstrating empathy. And I, and I think empathic world is equally one where we is exactly that, where we spread agency, where we democratize carpe diem. And, and you find some a lot of very interesting development thought. For example, Amartya Sen, the economist, has this idea of the capabilities approach to development, which is about the idea that you, you want to lift people out of poverty, not for its own sake. You want to build a school in Ghana so that a child has then the power to make a choice that matters to them in their life, go in one direction or another. And I think if we're feeling, if we're sort of thinking about empathy on its deepest level, we want to give people the capacity to make those choices that matter to them. Well, so Roman, ultimately, this is where empathy and carpe diem merge. Yeah. Roman, I, I would like to have you over uh, in my uh, dinner of my life. So someday we'll be able to discuss a lot more. But time is what it is. So I really appreciate you coming on. That was really fun. Um, really great to meet you and, and, and to listen to your words. Very wonderfully philosophical yet uh, pragmatic because you do you are trying to create activity uh, behind it which is which is remarkable so uh, what's the best way what what's the best way to track down buy your books uh, follow what you're up to Ron? what do you prefer i mean presumably in a digital way because i don't want everyone knocking on your door you could knock at my door and ask for a signed copy of a book but uh, probably easier to go to my website romanchrisnarik.com follow me on twitter 
visit the Empathy Museum at empathymuseum.com where we've got a lovely podcast um, and get into some of my work in that way. Well, I have a lot of those in the book as well, Roman. So uh, beautiful. I'll put those in the show notes. Carry on. I look forward to catching up with you on the real tennis court too. Let's do that soon. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes and other blog posts on MinterDial.com. If you enjoyed the show, please like the handy Facebook button. Or better yet, head over to iTunes to give a rating and review. But first, relax to Josh Sachs's finger paint. Oh, fill me with all your colors any different way.
Bruce Martin, host of Pit Pass Indy. Each week, I go behind the scenes of the NTT IndyCar Series and introduce our listeners to the biggest stars of IndyCar, which features the Indianapolis 500 as its cornerstone event. The men and women that compete in IndyCar may be the bravest athletes in all of sport as danger lurks around every corner. They are able to look danger in the eye without flinching. That is why the NTT IndyCar Series features the best racing on the planet. Join me every week as we talk to the stars of IndyCar, including the legends of the Indianapolis 500 on Pit Pass Indy from Evergreen Podcast. 